0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. The coronavirus pandemic is changing the way the medical field operates, and some of those changes are being developed right here in San Diego. We'll talk to reporter Gary Robbins about that. Then we'll meet this week's Name Drop San Diego guest, Ron Neering, a Republican Party leader. First, the news. Three people were killed and many others were injured Monday morning when a car drove up onto a sidewalk line with tents near San Diego City College. Police arrested the driver, Craig Martin Voss, a 71-year-old from San Diego, on suspicion of nine felony charges. The charges include three counts of gross vehicular manslaughter, five counts of injuring someone while committing a felony, and one count of driving while impaired by drugs. Authorities said Voss was headed westbound on B Street, west of 16th Street, about 9 a.m. when his Volvo veered right and plowed through people on the sidewalk. Three people died at the scene, five others were injured, and a sixth person declined treatment. A San Diego County judge issued a temporary restraining order Monday that blocks California from enforcing rules that regulate school openings. The judge said the state has denied children their right to an education by forcing many to stay in online learning. Judge Cynthia Freeland granted the restraining order to a group of North County parents who sued state leaders last month to overturn the school reopening framework. The lawsuit argued that the rules were unfairly preventing schools from reopening and that children are suffering because of school closures. Freeland also temporarily overturned state denials of requests by Poway Unified, San Diego Union High, and Carlsbad Unified to reopen their middle and high schools for regular in-person learning. White men dominate San Diego's police force partly because women and people of color are filtered out of the hiring process in early stages. That's according to a New City report written by consultants. San Diego police officers are 84% male and 59% white. The report says there could be problems with the written exams or physical tests that applicants must complete. During the early stages of the hiring process, men were 2.3 times more likely to be considered qualified than women, despite those same women being 1.2 times more likely to have a college degree. The coronavirus pandemic has taken a terrible toll on the world. But if there is a bright spot, it's that San Diego has risen to the occasion in fighting it. Science reporter Gary Robbins wrote about San Diego's contributions and where we go from here. Gary, I know this is such a sad and complicated topic, but from a big picture perspective, how has COVID-19 changed how we do medicine for the better?
1: It has uh, sparked a tremendous amount of innovation, particularly in a place like San Diego, where there's a real big biotech and biomedical research community and a lot of companies that exploit that, pharmaceutical companies. Um, one of the things that has been, been done here is that some of the institutions have really jumped ahead in telemedicine. So the idea that you can talk to your doctor face to face in real time uh, on a computer screen or on a, on a smartphone. Now telemedicine had been something that had been promised in a big way for a long time, but it really had been operating in a small level, primarily due to you know regulatory issues involving insurance and licensing. But when COVID popped up, you know these the hospital networks, like uh, Scripps and UC San Diego realized that they had to do something really fast because they couldn't have a lot of people who had regular needs coming into the hospitals, which were overloaded with COVID patients. um, And they wanted to keep down uh, COVID infections. Uh, The particularly impressive work was done by Scripps Health. They put together a customized telemedicine system within a three week period last year. And since then, it has served more than 500,000 patients. Uh, UC San Diego is a smaller network, but they've done more than a quarter of a million. And what they tell me is that it really has shown that this can be done uh, easily on a technical network and that in many cases, you could be talking to your doctor via your smartphone if that's what you wish. In fact, Scripps uh, Medicine started out doing that because when the COVID um, uh, um, virus hit, Um, A lot of the stores like Best Buy were quickly cleaned out of uh, web cameras. So, you know, hospitals couldn't quickly buy up a bunch of webcams to talk to patients. They had to go to their smartphones. Hmm. And this has kind of proven that smartphones can play a really easy and useful role when it comes to uh, people's human health.
0: What do you think telemedicine will look like going forward? I know before this, we were able to do some doctor's appointments um, you know, over video or, or, or over the phone. But will that become more common or, or, or even required going forward?
1: I think that it will. So um, the number of people served by telemedicine at Scripps Health, for example, has declined. But it now represents a large percentage of their business. So they originally thought that they were going to introduce telemedicine over a three to five year period. And that it would come to represent about 15% of their business, but the COVID um, uh, situation, you know, just jumped, uh, started everything. Um, so they peaked, but now uh, they're at a place where roughly 20 to 25% of their business is virtual. So it's higher and much faster than they expected, and I think that will be pretty true of most major health ne- health networks. Now, you know, I talked to my own provider the other day um, about. A bunch of things that were being done, uh, standard uh, tests. And, um, you know, the first thing they said was, well, we want to do one of these by telemedicine. Are you okay with that? I said, absolutely. It'll be the first time that I've done it, but it seems like a medium that is built for many things. Like, for example, um, advice on nutrition, uh, things like that.
0: If we do switch mostly to telehealth, telemedicine, do you think this has like the opportunity to bring down the cost of healthcare?
1: That is such a tough question. Um, the health networks have been fighting with the insurers because the insurers don't want to pay as much money um, for um, telemedicine visits as they do an in-person visit. I don't think that over the short term, it is likely that um, telemedicine will, will overtake in-person. In in-person is, um, is part of our culture. There is great reason to do a lot of uh, in-person things. And right now, we're not at the place where technology has advanced uh, to where we want it to be when it comes to doing things remotely. For example, we can do things on our smartphones. But a lot of the other things that are being um, looked at here by the universities and research institutes involve technology that's just not there yet. For example, um, UC San Diego is um, trying to develop a mask that has a sensor on it uh, that would alert you if you've been exposed to someone. With COVID-19, and the idea there is perhaps even take it one step further, and then you know send a signal to your phone or or to someplace else. Um, It's not there yet, but you know it's a kind of thing that may come to pass. There's a ring called Aura O U R A, which takes certain measurements of your body. So if you just wear the ring, like any other ring, it could mention your it could uh, measure your body temperature. And that is really important because you want to know what your body temperature is over time, not just at what, one moment in time. You've probably walked into buildings or restaurants where someone puts that little gun up and they take the temperature off your forehead. Well, that's a snapshot at that just particular moment. Um, by being able to do it all of the time, then you get a lot richer information. Uh, some of the NBA players have, um, have been um, helping to test this. They're not there yet, but it's the kind of thing that could come. Um, We also need a lot faster testing. You know, we're doing much, much better right now, uh, Christy. But the reality is, is that we still have to wait two, three, four days in order to get the results of a COVID-19 test back. And we need those tests. I think there is um, what people are, uh, there's something that really exists called COVID fatigue. You know, it's been a year, we're exhausted, we want to move on. And we are moving on and the vaccines are helping, but we must keep in mind that the vaccine is not a permanent guarantee uh, against you getting sick. Um, They will be in essence like flu vaccines where you have to take them perhaps seasonally and then maybe get even a booster shot. So we're doing well, but it's not some cure that lasts forever. Um, Scientists have yet to figure this all out yet, but a person like myself, I've had both of the, um, Uh, uh, vaccines, or or I've had both doses, so there's very little chance that I'll get seriously ill, but scientists don't know whether a person like me can still contract the virus and pass it on to someone else. They know that it can happen, but they're not sure how widely that problem uh, exists, you know, in society. They also need better testing and better drugs, better therapies for things like the so-called long haulers. People who get COVID, and bounce back, but they continue to have health-related problem, problems for long periods of time. Um, some people have problems, uh, for example, related to their heart, which can be a very serious situation. We're also in this uh, situation where we need antiviral drugs, and we just don't have a good staple of drugs like that. And we need to keep in mind that we're going to need them over the long term. I spent some time talking to Davy Smith, who is the infectious disease director for UC San Diego. And he told me, I'm going to be dealing with COVID-19 on some level as a physician and as a researcher for the rest of my life. The same is true of HIV AIDS. Um, Scientists have developed drugs that for most people make it a manageable disease, but it is still a disease that has to to be managed, treated and it's still something that uh, can infect people and can kill people. So while we've made a lot of progress, we need to make a lot better technological process and we need
0: to do it quickly. Yeah, we interviewed Davey Smith on Name Drop San Diego, um, my other podcast earlier, I guess it was last year. And he talked about, you know, at, at the time vaccines were being developed, that's obviously an important thing to have. It's, you know, like part, part of um, stopping and managing the pandemic. But he also said, you know, treatments are just as important, you know, having, knowing how to treat people once they do get it. I mean, have there been any advancements in treatment, especially uh, advancements that were discovered or developed here locally?
1: There's a great deal of work occurring locally, but we don't have many, uh, we don't have antivirus broadly yet. Um, So a lot of the institutions, including UC San Diego and Scripps Research, the La Jolla Institute, the Salk Institute, Sanford Burnham Previce, they're all doing work related to this. Um, In particular, the La Jolla Institute is now a clearinghouse globally uh, for antibodies. So they're working with scientists from around the world to see if they're finding antibodies that would be effective against a disease that could that, for example, could become part of a drug. Um, you know, Drugs can take a very long time to develop. UC San Diego is doing work with them on that very thing. And some of the basic biology and chemistry that's being done at places like script research will be the underpinning of the drugs that do come. So while we don't have them yet, they will come. And at the same time, um, better vaccines will come locally. One of the things that's being done now at places like UC San Diego is they're preparing to test for what the next vaccines will be like. So here in our County today, we have three good vaccines, but it is not clear how effective they will be uniformly against some of the variants. Um, And it's broadly thought that we're going to need to have either a next generation version of that vaccine or some type of booster shot that you can get along the way. So some of the testing will be done here this week, UC San Diego is beginning to give out the J&J vaccine. Um, you know, and that's the one it's only one shot and it doesn't have to be refrigerated in the same way as others. Uh, a lot of that was done here. The clinical testing was done here. And from what I can tell, as they go ahead and improve that drug, it's very likely that a lot of the testing will be done here as well. So drugs are coming. Better vaccines are coming. We're a real big place for looking at the biology and chemistry. And for the testing of them. So, this is going to go on long term.
0: Now, let's turn to opinion. Abby Hamblin is an opinion editor and producer at the UT, and she's a co host of Name Drop San Diego along with me. Name Drop San Diego is a weekly interview podcast where we get to know influential people in, around, and from San Diego. The interview is up now. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can just search Name Drop San Diego and subscribe for our latest interviews. Okay, Abby, tell me who our guest is this week.
2: So we have Ron Nearing on Name Drop San Diego. He has worked at pretty much every level of the Republican Party, from the top working as a spokesperson for the presidential campaign of Ted Cruz in 2016 to the state level, he ran for lieutenant governor in California. He worked at the state party. He worked um, as the chairman of the state party and the chairman of the San Diego County Republican Party. He's been on the Republican Republican National Committee. He is now on a local planning group where he ran as a Republican. Uh, he's a you know commentator and someone that's still uh, pretty strongly involved with the party. Um, And may continue to be. Um, He didn't say he would run again necessarily, but he's open to all possibilities and he's a proud Republican. And we just wanted to bring him on to, you know, it's an interesting time for the party. So to hear more about his thoughts and just kind of get to know him.
0: Yeah, I mean, he has such an impressive resume. He's worked at all levels of the party, all levels of politics. And we talked to him a lot about sort of where the Republican Party has been and where it's going. He had a lot of interesting sort of high-level thoughts there. What stood out to you, Abby?
2: Yeah, so I think a point he made, which I've definitely paid attention to as also a member of the editorial board, as someone who um, pays close attention to local elections, is that so often, whether it's the local candidates, the state candidates, um, you know, it's election year or not, the tone of a party is set on the national level. That's because of, uh, you know, news media coverage. That's because the outsized impact of the the leaders on the national level versus, you know, e- even if you live in the city where your uh, election is going on or your local Republicans or Democrats are doing things, um, you're definitely just going to hear more about what's going on nationally. So we talked a little bit about that. He also shed some light on, what he learned from being a national spokesman for the party and kind of, um, you know, what role news media plays. Um, It was interesting because obviously we're journalists. So um, yeah, just a lot to say uh, on a pretty granular uh, level. But yeah, as you said, high level, because he's been in every aspect of the job.
0: I want to end on this clip. Um, His parents are immigrants to the United States. They were born during Nazi Germany. They came uh, to New York, you know, and decided to settle there. And it's the place they wanted to raise a family. Here's him talking a little bit about his family's politics.
3: My father uh, actually told a story very similar to what uh, former Governor Schwarzenegger told. And that is that um, when he came to America, he saw the two parties, and he thought that the party that best reflected the reasons why he came to America was the Republican Party, because he came to America for uh, freedom and opportunity, and he saw the Republican Party as more reflective of that than the alternative, and so he became a Republican, and I think I picked some of that up uh, in uh, in my time uh, as well. My mother was not very political at all, but my father had very strong ideas uh, about government i would call him a, a lowercase l libertarian he was very you know he came to america for opportunity and uh, and that's what he saw in the in the republican party
0: i was just going to say you know i think there is a misconception out there sometimes we talk about it as if all immigrants are liberal and that's clearly not the case
3: no as a matter of fact you have uh, many people who come to america who are fleeing big government in their own country and so the republican Principle of limited government and freedoms that are protected, and a government of enumerated and limited powers, uh, should naturally be uh, appealing. Uh, and uh, that's what brought my father to the Republican Party, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and many other people uh, as well. And I think that uh, the Republican Party uh, has a natural ally in many people who come to this country, uh, and uh, and that should be greater. Uh, uh, there should be more effort there to help people see that connection.
0: You can find the stories we discussed today online at SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, host of the San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening.